0: What does it mean to be in relationship with the wisdom of our ancestors? How might the spiritual teachings of the past be relevant to the way we think about some of the most pressing issues of today? My name is Michael Wexler and with my father, Professor Philip Wexler, and mystical scholar, L.E. Rubin. I am one of the authors of the book, Social Vision, the Lubavitcher Rebbe's transformative paradigm for the world. In Social Vision, we sought to answer the previous questions by exploring the teachings of Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism, and Jewish spirituality as articulated by Menachem Mendel Schneerson, the seventh in a line of what are known as Lebavitcher Rebbe's. In this second season of Social Vision Talks, we'll be unpacking some of the major themes of the book through the lens of the third Social Vision Conference, held in October of 2021. The scholars, activists, and practitioners featured in this series are innovators in their fields, and it is my pleasure to present to you this groundbreaking conversation. It's nearly cliche at this point to assert that the basis of mental health is in fact spiritual. In the first of two speakers featured today, Kate Lowenthal of Royal Holloway University College London joins the Social Vision Conference to explain the exact significance of this connection. Our second featured speaker, Marsha Brennan of Rice University, complements the panel by applying her expertise in art history to an investigation of the work and life of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Please enjoy these highlights from the panel entitled interconnectedness in all aspects of life this will be our last episode in the second season of the social vision talks we invite you to check out season number one at a podcast platform near you and thank you for joining us in this groundbreaking conversation
1: Thank you. Thank you so much. And Kate, that thank you so much for the, the talk that you just gave as well. I think and hope that we'll be able to have a very interesting conversation regarding um, spirituality and practice. Um, wonderful. OK, uh, thank you, um, Rabbi Murray. Um, and also my thanks go to Philip Wexler, Jonah Gelfand and Jesse Noyli for their kind invitation to speak again at a social vision conference. This is the second time that I'm doing this. OK. Um, My talk, it'll be sort of more formal. It will be um, about 10 minutes that I'll be speaking, and then we will have a lot of time then for questions and answers and perhaps thinking together about the pragmatic as well as the metaphysical and transcendent dimensions of the topics that we're addressing. So while my talk relates to the principle of reciprocity between self, community, and cosmos, it does not address issues concerning gender, incarceration, or ecology. Instead. I'll share a story that exemplifies the transformative value of interpersonal encounters. More specifically, the story I'm going to tell you speaks to issues of balance and reciprocity between the living and the dying. The story is drawn directly from my clinical experiences as an artist in residence in the Department of Palliative Palliative Care and Rehabilitation Medicine at the MD Anderson Cancer Center. Just as the story engages themes of emptiness and fullness, it allows us to re-envision what is ugly and what is truly beautiful in life and at the end of life. And even in the choice, my choice of words there, you're hearing resonances with themes that, that come up within social vision. Okay, so one day I worked with a very sweet, very elderly man who was a Holocaust survivor and who would ultimately pass away later that evening. The story of our encounter sheds light on key themes that arise in chapter four of Social Vision, where Philip Wexler examines Rebbe Schneerson's views on balance and reciprocity, giving and receiving, the individual and the collective, as well as the existential and the metaphysical. As we shall see, this story also speaks directly to the value of an interpersonal encounter in which intimate communications convey a sense of, quote, inherent mutuality in which all participants are empowered and endowed with dignity, end quote. And that last phrase is coming from page 111 of Social Vision. As we reflect on these themes, we recognize the ways in which the secular can become sacralized. Now, let me provide some brief context for my encounter with this man and his family. So in my day job. I am indeed a professor of the humanities at Rice University, where my teaching and my research engage the fields of modern and contemporary art history, museum studies, religious studies, and the medical humanities. In addition, since early 2009, it has also been my privilege to serve as a literary artist in residence in the Department of Palliative Care and Rehabilitation Medicine at um, MD Anderson Cancer Center. And then since early 2021, I've expanded this practice to work with general oncology patients at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. In all contexts, this work engages the intersection of literary aesthetics and psychosocial oncology. So, what exactly do I do? I visit with people facing advanced illness and the end of life, and I record the narratives and images that are meaningful for them at this time. Within this intimate practice, Patients and caregivers provide the content of the stories, while I provide the practical means for the artwork's realization. As I visit with people, I write down their words verbatim, and then I arrange them into um, their phrases, into successive lines that resemble poetry. At the end of the visit, I read the person's words back to them, and I invite them to make any additions or corrections that they wish. When I work in the hospital at the bedside, I inscribe the narrative into a handmade paper journal, which the person is able to keep as a gift for themselves and their family. In this way, the the journal becomes something delicate yet tangible, um, so it's something to hold onto as all else is slipping away. When I work remotely um, with my patients in Pennsylvania, I subsequently email people their story. In all cases, all of the work is done in a single sitting, And all of the words are the person's own. And this is crucial. They must be their own. If it sounds like me, the narrative is not good for anything. So as this suggests, as an artist, I work in the media of language and human consciousness. I would even venture to say that as a teacher, I do something similar, as we all do, as we all do. There's no single protocol for our creative interactions. Because each person and each situation are unique, I allow the circumstances to guide the work. In this way, the encounters are characterized by a sense of openness and reciprocity. So that's the general contextual setup. Just as I work with language, however, sometimes caring for people at the very end of life entails attention to the subtle vocabulary that arises when individuals speak in a language of silence, when they communicate through overflowing gestures made with empty hands you're already starting to hear some of the paradoxical uh, implications of my language and in fact of the practice itself. And it's there that we can get into the conversation as well regarding the pragmatic aspects of the clinical encounters and then the philosophical aspects of the topics worth reflecting on in social vision. Yeah, okay. Um, So one day I met the family of an extremely elderly man who was on the threshold of actively dying and who would ultimately pass away later that evening. While visiting with the man's family, I learned that he was a Holocaust survivor and that his childhood experiences growing up in Eastern Europe had directly shaped his personal character and how he lived his life. Even as he lay dying, the man's bearing and expression were filled with light and grace. At that point, the man could no longer speak, and he drifted in and out of consciousness while we created a tribute to him. The man's wife of nearly six decades, and the family members who had assembled in the room all contributed to the narrative. They shared details of the man's life history and his personal character, vividly describing the things he loved to do and his overall love for people. They also provided some choice examples of the man's clever and sarcastic sense of humor. These were their words, not mine and they reflected on the greater impact that he had made on the world and on the people around him. So I sat there with this family for about an hour and crafted their narrative. When I told the family that the story was complete and I prepared to read it aloud, the man at the end of life opened his eyes, looked directly into my eyes and beckoned me to his side. I returned his gaze and I introduced myself. He held out his left hand which I took in my right hand as I read the artwork aloud. The man followed along closely and he smiled and even laughed softly at one point. When I had finished reading, the man squeezed my hand and then with his right index finger, he made a sweeping circular gesture around the room, indicating how much he loved his family and how much he valued each of them. I have never forgotten the tenderness of this encounter or the inclusive power of the man's circular gesture. During this visit, the man's empty hands overflowed with meaning as he spoke eloquently in a language of silence. Okay, so that's our story. now. Returning to the themes of social vision, and this was why I just absolutely could not say no. When I got that email from you know from Phil Wexler and you know and from Jonah, I'm like, oh my gosh, I've got to do this. Okay, here it is. Here's why. So as I noted at the outset, this is a story of giving and receiving. and now I'm paraphrasing a lot of language in social vision, and I'm just going to go ahead and give the page numbers whenever I'm citing social vision. This is a story of giving and receiving, page 111, that engages both the individual and the collective, 126. During this modest yet remarkable encounter, everyone in the room, including the frail elderly man at the end of his life was, quote, empowered and endowed with dignity, 111. The story offers a unique perspective on issues of inclusivity while showing the ways in which a person's life can be seen as a pathway for the distribution of blessings, 123. Okay. Ultimately, this is a story of intimacy and proximity that speaks at once to issues of contingency, fragility, and power. In this encounter, presence creates space for absence, while absence creates a space for presence. Nested within this reciprocal formulation is a simultaneous sense of negation and affirmation of emptiness and fullness, of humility and grandeur. The story thus allows us to see what ordinarily cannot be seen. And this comes up again and again when I'm reading about the Rebbe's teachings and social vision. There's this process of enabling us to see and to it consciously um, what ordinarily cannot be seen as we grasp the power of an absence that encompasses and contains all things within a gesture that holds nothing yet which potentially holds everything. OK, I just did something kind of fancy there, so I'm going to repeat that sentence. This is the teacher in me. I know I'm speaking at a conference here. But it's, that, it's the move back and forth and back and forth. It's the reweaving. So I'm going to just repeat this. The story allows us to see what ordinarily cannot be seen as we grasp the power of an absence that both encompasses and contains all things within a gesture that holds nothing yet which potentially holds everything. Notably, even though these qualities are subtle and impalpable, they are clearly evident and readily discernible. And here, I would very self-consciously use the term trace. By engaging these themes, the story speaks to the value of the coincidence of opposites, just as it gifts us with a new perspective on holding the unholdable. Here, I would make a more general observation, namely, people at the end of life can be seen as occupying a crucial transitional position that both incorporates and mediates between multiple worlds at once. In so doing, their presences can evoke a sense of the existential and the otherworldly, of distance and proximity as simultaneous propositions. Following Rebbe Schneerson's teachings, if we approach the world receptively, then we can see how we may all learn from every person and how we all learn from one another. This comes up the discussion page 118 of social vision. In so doing, the physical world can appear as a revelation of the numinous. Thus, even though there is nothing conventionally pretty about the story I've just told you, and that's not within the chapter that we're looking at today, but the pretty and the ugly, that's within social vision and elsewhere, obviously. So even though there is nothing conventionally pretty about this story, it is still intensely beautiful. And in its unfolding, the secular appears to be sacred. As Philip Wexler points out, the Rebbe's teachings emphasize the great value of perceiving transcendence, quote, as it is imminently embodied in ordinary life, including in the face, of any and every individual whom you encounter, 118, and that is coming from the Rebbe. I would just say in conclusion, expanding this line of thought through the principle of reciprocity, I would suggest that perhaps we can perceive such transcendence, not only in a person's face, but in their hands as well.